Hello and welcome to another episode of Make Things That Matter. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and this is where we explore how to unleash the power of the mind to help people thrive in their expression at and through their work. Simply put, this is about creating great things in the world and thriving as you do so. I want to say thank you so much for listening. I know there is an endless supply of content out there that you could be listening to, and it means a lot to me that you're spending some of your day with me. So thank you. One way you can support the show is to subscribe to it just so that you don't miss any episodes. And please share this one with a friend if it resonates with you. Also, if you feel so moved, please go give the show a five-star review and also a written review on Apple Podcasts. That would be incredibly supportive of me and the show. That gets it in way more people's ears by lifting it up on the rankings. Well, I am thrilled to start this new year off with this conversation with David Cadavy, an author and thinker who has profoundly shaped my thinking as a creative person over the last decade since his first book, Designed for Hackers, taught me the fundamentals of graphic design when I was a wet-behind-the-ears computer programmer. David is a prolific author, podcaster, self-publishing coach, and speaker who has published seven books and 281 podcast episodes so far and spoken literally all around the world at conferences like South by Southwest and many others. This conversation covers a ton of ground, sharing David's journey from the Midwest to Silicon Valley all the way down to Latin America, across four books, multiple startups, and speaking and teaching all around the world. David's commitment to following his curiosity inspires me and he shares real wisdom in here about thinking about the impact you want to create with your work, navigating the existential challenges of a creative life, and following your curiosity to find what you really want. So without any further ado, please enjoy David Cadaby. Let's dive in. David, welcome to the show. How are we doing today? Andrew, thank you for having me. I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing awesome. I'm so excited that you and I are getting a chance to have this conversation. I know we've been kind of going back and forth on Twitter for a while and, and clearly are engaging a lot of similar concepts. So I was, I was very honored that you made some time to, to sit down and talk. I'm always honored to be invited on a show and sorry I missed you while you were in Medellin too. You know, it would have been fun. We'll, we'll, we'll get together on the next trip. Yeah. I, as I was saying, I absolutely love that city and will be coming back for sure. So we'll do we'll do a round two in person down there next time I'm there. Right. Next time you're in LA, hit me up. So, you know, I really, I thought it'd be fun to start a little bit more on, on your backstory, how you kind of, you've had this very interesting evolutionary path from being a designer to now this, this very prolific author and creativity and, and, you know, a whole story arc of your own in between there. And I wanted to, try to connect a little bit and understand a little bit more about what connects those dots for you. So, you know, it's yeah. funny, we were saying right before we hit record here, I first came across your work. I, I actually, I realized like you're, I've read every single thing you've written or not everything, you've written, <laughs> every book you've written rather, you've written a lot more than that. I've read all your books over the years and uh, starting with, with this one that I'm holding up now, uh, Design for Hackers, which a very, very good designer handed me when I first became an engineer and started working on uh, things that involved user interfaces. He's like, you know, please yeah. read this and, you know, educate yourself a little bit. And one of the things I noticed when I just picked this back up earlier today was that you you dedicated this one to your parents, specifically for encouraging you to follow your curiosity. And I was just, I was wondering what it was, if there's anything in particular there that clearly that has become a through line of your life is following and exploring your curiosity. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see that manifest. So I was curious if what, what really stands out about that for you. You know, it's funny because it's almost like I tell people I was raised by wolves because... <laughs> I mean, it was a stable home life and everything, but they didn't, they didn't really like people, people will say like, Oh, my dad, you know, taught me all this or my mom taught me all that. And I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of things that my parents taught me that I take for granted, but I don't, there's not, I don't have that. I don't, there's not, I don't like go to my parents for advice. I never really did. 
And I guess kind of like reflecting on that book, I realized, well, but I'm really grateful that I, they didn't, they weren't overbearing mm. like that. I mean, I just knew people say in college or something who maybe they had like a father who said, Oh, you're going to study business because mm-hmm. that's the only thing you're going to be able to get a job with or whatever. <laughs> when I said I was going to study graphic design, my dad said, well, you're probably never going to make more than $30,000 a year, but <laughs> if you want to, you know, do it. <laughs> and so, so they were, they were overbearing about things. And I, I realized that, Oh yeah, they really let me kind of follow my curiosity, do whatever I, I, it was that I was interested in. It seems like you're somebody who's very much driven by your curiosity. And it seems like yeah. that is maybe what has led you on this evolution from being, you said you were raised in the Midwest, right? And then yeah. kind of making the leap to Silicon Valley and then Omaha, there we go. So Omaha boy, and then makes his way to the Valley and San Francisco, but then says, screw it. I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm going back to Chicago land. And, uh-huh. and how's like, that it's it, that's such a counterintuitive decision, right? As yeah. someone like I also have spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley and in the tech world, that's not a thing a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. So, can you? I would love like what was it that drove that for you? What what made you go? You know what? I'm going to walk away from all the you know the stock options and the whatever, and I'm going to go back to Chicago in the winter. Uh, yeah, right. So curiosity is number one for me. That's what I've discovered. Uh, I have to follow my curiosity. Otherwise, I'm just not interested at all in whatever I'm doing. And yeah, to end up in Silicon Valley from Omaha, Nebraska is unusual for, I mean, I, I, it is probably to anybody who's an immigrant or something, it probably sounds ridiculous. Like they come from all over the world to go to Silicon Valley, but there just wasn't I wasn't, I didn't aim to go to Silicon Valley. I just wanted to get out of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And so I somehow got a job uh, offer in Silicon Valley and like, yeah, let's go. I'm going to California. So I went to California and it was this wonderful experience being surrounded by these people who were tech savvy. And this is like 2005 Silicon Valley was, you know, people have heard Silicon Valley. They thought, they thought, uh, dot com bust then mm-hmm. there was no yeah you know, silicon valley wasn't that cool in 2005 no it was it, i mean it, it was yeah if i would argue that it's, it was cooler than in it retrospect, is now yeah, in retrospect it was very cool to do that but it didn't have the cultural cachet at the time well i would say i mean i'm just saying like my idea of cool I would yeah. rather be in Silicon Valley 2005 than Silicon oh, Valley now. Hundred <laughs> percent. Like, the the opportunity to connect with people and really like break in and make a mark was so yeah. much easier. Then. Yeah, and I just you know I, I was always super mm-hmm. passionate about graphic design. Like that was a thing that I studied, and I was active in the graphic design community in Nebraska. And I was just looking for community and there was things like Super Happy Dev House, these all night mm-hmm. development parties, or yep. I'd go to different different events and meet various people who were working on all these different apps and and it was very cool and it was it was exciting and and I, I was surrounded by people that for the first time, just tons of people who I got and who I admired and who I thought had interesting things to say. And, you know, I worked there for a few years and it just sort of got, I started to relate less and less to it. I think that was as, as it started to become clear that there was going to be more success more financial success going on. And then people, it started to become a thing where, you know, 
you're, you went to the Ivy League. You went to an Ivy League school. Uh, you were going to go to an Ivy League school since the day you were born. Mm-hmm. And instead of going to be an eye banker, you're going to like go do a startup in Silicon Valley or work for a startup in Silicon Valley. And your parents are, are think that's crazy type of mm-hmm. thing, or, but mm-hmm. there's, there's money there or whatever. And so it just didn't feel right to me anymore. And this is a place where like I, it, it, it sounds ridiculous to, com- to pl- complain about stuff like this because I have so many wonderful privileges in my life, but but like growing up in Nebraska, pre-internet or you know pre-really interconnected globe, it was like very isolating experience. Especially if you're somebody sure. who's like interested in a lot of different things other than say college so football, driven by curiosity, like driven yourself, by curiosity, mm-hmm. like you're just isolated and there, there, you know, and 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 you feel at like a bit of a disadvantage because of it you know like when i hear somebody be, say like oh i grew up on long island i'm like what shut the fuck up man you were an hour away from new york city like you yeah, have you nothing to train complain to be in about. new york like come like, on are you kidding me which i'm sure plenty of people would say the exact same thing to me i was born in america right i know that because i live in columbia <laughs> and sure. uh, but but that's the way it felt and so to be in silicon valley and and for the first time in my life be around people who, oh, you went to Stanford, you went to Yale, you went to Harvard, you went to like all these schools that I heard of that like only people in movies went to those schools. That wasn't like a thing like that somebody was, that. nobody ever said to me like, hey, David, have you thought about going to Stanford or have you thought about going to Harvard? That was like, oh, that's for other people. Mm. And so to be yeah. around those people and have conversations with them and to feel like, okay, I can kind of hang here on some stuff. But then there's also stuff where I'm like, this person's really boring. Um, like this person's like <laughs> sheltered or this person like there's like they haven't really lack, lived very much perspective in certain ways and, and feeling that too. It, it was strangely a little alienating in, 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 in that way. And, but I think that like one of the great benefits of being from Nebraska was that for me to go to Silicon Valley and try it out and work for some companies and meet a lot of people and make connections that have uh, been valuable to me throughout my the adult life and career and then to say you know what this isn't my thing i'm gonna just head and go headed to chicago oh why do you have a job there no i'm just gonna go there and rent an apartment just so i can screw around with stuff during the middle of the winter and kind of see what i come up with there was nothing to lose like there wasn't you know nobody nobody was like oh my god you're throwing your life away or you know, there was no pressure there. I would love to hear about that moment, right? Because that, even if you didn't feel that pressure, yeah, there's still something very interesting to me about that moment where you're you're making this pivot and you're you're giving yourself this space and this time to, as as you just said, to screw around, right? You're like, all right, I'm gonna go like get an apartment in Chicago and mess around for an undefined period of time. Yes, in that was the, that some was the direction. Plan. <laughs> yeah, that was the plan. That was, and, the and so plan. I'm just curious, like w- at that time, because th- that clearly began, you know, this this the arc you've been on since, with yes. you know, exploring exploring creativity for for I don't know how else to say it, but I'm curious, maybe if you have a, a more concise way of like what's the through line for you, whatever I'm um, curious about, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what was there a moment where you just like, what was the moment where you said like, I've got to do this? Do you remember where you um, were? Yeah, actually, there was. I do remember the kind of the. It was it was weird, you know. You know, I was twenty eight. wasn't necessarily like the you know the 
the the is it the bastion of of like of being super well adjusted and you know having my stuff together necessarily but like i just, i remember there was this 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 girl that i had been dating or this this woman i had been dating for a few weeks or something and you know we had a phone conversation she was like yeah this isn't working out and it was like i i, I had had that conversation so many times and i was like you know something's just not right about and I even like on that conversation for some reason I was like, you know, I'm gonna probably move to Chicago. <laughs> like, I just, I just sort of had had gotten felt over it over the California dream, I guess. Trying to connect with people and realizing that that I just felt like I a lot of the people I hung out with, it's like in California, and I know you live in California, but it's almost like. The people around you are are just like, or you, you feel like you're a certain an accessory to whoever is around you in in hmm. their experience, hmm. rather than like connecting. And this is at 28 years old, right? Like in sure. San Francisco, so obviously doesn't apply to everybody in California. <laughs> but having grown up in the Midwest, where like you 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 know, so more of a there's more of a connection. There's not a whole lot going on, so you're kind of talking to the person that you're with. And and a good example of this might be like if 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 I were to have a a a friend who I knew in the Midwest or something come and visit me in California. And we were going to go to dinner and then somebody was like, Hey, can I come? I would probably say, Oh, you know, I haven't seen this person for a long time. We have a lot to catch up on. And mm -hmm. I felt like in California, it sort of felt like everybody was invited all the time because mm. nobody was having any real connection anyway. Mm. And again, like I said, it's 28 years old. Yeah, yeah. In a hyper, hyper ambitious environment. Hyper you know. ambitious environment. Everybody's like very selfish and whatever, including right, myself. Right, right. But that element was certainly missing. And I think that part of it, it was part of it. I talked about it a, a little bit in the heart to start where I was started to have that was kind of a moment where I had this realization that that, oh, I had rejected this nine to five, get a secure job at an insurance company in Omaha sort of template that had been presented to me graduating from college. And, mm -hmm. and in the process of rejecting that, I had embraced this other template, this sort of Silicon Valley, the, the, the way to be the, the definition of, su of success is to move fast and break things, you know, ask for forgiveness, not for permission and raise money from venture capitalists to start a company. And I had mm -hmm. done some, I'd started my own company, but I didn't set up one investor meeting. I didn't want mm -hmm. to do that. Yet at the same time, I kind of had that posture of that I thought I was an entrepreneur and that I was going to, you know, build a big company. But deep down, it, it wasn't for me and it wasn't something that I wanted. And, mm -hmm. and I didn't understand the motivations behind people who, who wanted to do that. And so I guess I sort of came to that realization that there was this, that disconnect between my actual and ideal self. And, you know, I, we often search in relationships for some sort of solution that's going to, oh, this person's going to, you know, help me become this thing that I uh, aspire to be that my ideal self. And so maybe part of like having the, this cycle of compulsive dating and realizing that it's not working and it's sort of like 
popped the that 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 vacuum between actual and ideal and sort of made me realize like oh you know i'm just gonna go totally invest in myself Mm -hmm. here and and reconnect with some things about the midwest that were familiar to me and that Mm -hmm. felt comfortable and so i kind of wanted to be in an environment like that so i wanted a winter it's amazing to me that i now live in the city of, of, of the eternal spring and the weather's always nice and i don't feel a ton of pressure to be outside when it's nice but being in california coming from nebraska where the weather is commonly nice when you live when you grow up in the midwest if it's nice outside you better go outside, get outside. you better get yeah. outside you better do something so when it's like that all the time it gets a little exhausting and so i sort of missed just having that winter where you're just i'm just going to open up this programming book yeah, and it, there's just snow piling. I'm gonna up turtle outside. up for the winter and and just like go into so some stuff and see what work happens. On projects, yeah. And so I just I'd already done some journaling where I kind of went through sort of like there's I I could probably find it even in 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 a journal from then from 2007 or 2008 of just like a string of moments where I felt connected or where I felt comfortable. Mm. And it there was this sort of vision of a ferny plant and hardwood floors in some cold Chicago apartment because I had f- some friends who I went to college with who lived there. And so I had that vision and I, I wanted to 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 make that real. So I do kind of remember right that 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 yeah. moment. And then I also remember talking to my roommate about it. And he was just like, what? What are you doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, people don't move to, from California to Chicago. People move from Chicago to California. Like, are you sure you're all right? Like, this girl just broke up with you. You know, okay? you, you, you started this business. It's not necessarily going that well. Like, you know, I know our, our other roommates moving out and I'm going in this other apartment and, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. that, like that stuff's going on. But like, is this really what you want to do? I'm like, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, well, first of all, kudos to you for following the impulse, which I feel like is the the almost the precondition for all the really interesting things that are that that happen in in creativity, right? Like being willing to bet on your own impulses matters. It sort of opens the doorway to who knows what. But without that, like the door never the door never seems to open. And it reminds me, I had this quote I pulled out from the from the heart to start. You talk about the idea that art is uh, self actualization, and and the quote that I, I mean, obviously you wrote it, but I'm going to read it for the listener, which is the only way to become your true self is to find the art inside you and make it real. Your art is the best expression possible of who you really are. You make art when you take your passions, your interests, and even your compassion for others and combine them to make something uniquely yours. And then you later on say the doing often comes first, and it's only later that you realize what it all means. And so I'm curious, looking back on 10 years of this now, since it's been 10 years since your first book came out, you've done a lot of doing. When you look back, is there anything that stands out to you about what it all means? I mean, I think that is kind of what it all means right there, is that it's just the expression of, it's sort of this releasing of built up energy. Like you go mm-hmm. through life, and and you're building up potential energy all the time. You're having experiences. You're experiencing emotions. You're you're getting to know yourself. You're getting to know the people around you. You're getting to know the world around you. You're getting to know what's important to you. You have experiences. Maybe you have traumas. And all those things are stored up in you as potential energy. Just the same way that like if you throw a a, a bouncy ball on the ground that like it hits the floor and there's 
potential energy there and it gets released. And so that's what I see it as is that's what I, I think ultimately what it's all about besides the hokey pokey is, <laughs> is yeah, is is the building up and releasing of, of that energy. And I think that it took me a little while to figure that out. You know, for example, with, with Design for Hackers. Okay, so that was 10 years ago. But that came after three years of personal experimentation. That was, mm-hmm. I got fired, said I'm going to experiment. You know, a year later, moved to Chicago. Two more years of experimenting in that, in that cold apartment before I get this email, it's like, hey, do you want to write this book as a direct result of the experimentation that I did when I had no idea what was going to come of it? And so when Design for Hackers was successful and I was getting flown all over the world to speak and things and, you know, people would recognize me at any tech conference that I went to and speaking at South by Southwest and all these wonderful things that I had sort of dreamed of, dreamt of, there was this opportunity to, oh, you should like start a design firm and you should Mm -hmm. scale that, scale this brand and, you know, sell these online courses. And I tried some of those things for a while, but I came to realize like, no, it's the process through which I arrived at that book idea that that's that's what it's all about for me. Like, I don't want to do the scaling up of the brand and let's have an agency too. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. let's sell a bunch of online courses. I want to go back to the cold apartment in Chicago where I don't know what's going to happen and experiment and then see what the next thing is mm-hmm. that appears from that. And so it's just been the repetition of that process. And, you know, it should have been obvious because one of the things that I constantly returned to during that period when I was first started on my own was I watched that Steve Jobs Stanford commencement address from 2005 when he's like talking about you can't connect the dots moving forward. You can only connect them in moving in reverse. You have to follow your heart. You have to trust it will all work out. In yep. the end, and I watched that. I watched it over. I watched it so much; it just resonated like every night before bed. You watch so that thing. <laughs> deeply with me, and 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 so that's what I tried. I I tried to listen to that. It's like, okay, I'm going to follow my curiosity, trust that it will work out in the end. And then when it did work out, I, it took me a while to realize, like, oh no, I just I want to go back and do that again. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make explore this again. thing bigger that I that you know the I don't want to make the hit bigger. I want to go make another hit, and so that that I just love that process. So, have you by any chance read the book by a man named Peter Korn called "Why We Make Things and Why It Matters"? No, it sounds wonderful. Okay, I think you would really dig this book. Just something about the idea, you know, we're talking about here of one of his core points, and I, I'm forgetting the words. So this is not quite right, but. He talks about, he, he's a craftsman. So he's a, a furniture maker and, you know, sort of a, a senior sage type person in the woodworking world. I think he's in his sixties or seventies now. He's been doing this for a very long time and, and he really kind of wrote, poured everything he had learned from a career in craft into this one book. And one of the things he talks a lot about is that whatever the, the medium, whether it's wood or clay or words or whatever, that ultimately the artist or the maker goes into the studio trying to make a thing, but really what they're really making is themselves. Like they go into the studio to come out a different person. Yes, I totally agree with that. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a therapy, really. It's like, a, it's, it's a self-development thing. It is this is self-actualization, it is discovering who you are through taking who you are <laughs> 
and uh, turning it into something that you can show to the world and seeing how the world responds. One of the things I'm curious about is like when you when you look back over your you know your last ten years, let's say since the the first book came out, you've been exploring so many avenues of yourself, your ideas, putting them in the world, seeing what happens, taking another crack at it, so on and so forth. People really love the idea of like purpose, right? As this sort of unifying yeah. through line that makes it all fit together and makes sense. Have you found anything like that for yourself, or how do you, do you find that idea to actually be helpful? Yeah, I think it goes in, in waves for me. I, I think. I was really interested in in design. I really dug deep into it. I kind of found sort of my way of, hey, this is how this works, and turned that into a book and put that out in the world and then immediately lost interest in it. So yeah, I'm done. (laughs) Yeah. And and so now the thing that I'm doing now, I've got these, the the heart to start, mind management, not time management, hoping to add a trilogy, an end to the the trilogy. So that, (laughs) you know, we'll see when that happens. And I see that as like, okay, well, this is me. Now, looking back on the process through which I arrived and created Design for Hackers and the things I've created, some of the things I've created since then, and just trying to, the same way I came up with the framework for here's how visual design, this thing that, this, this thing that people think is so subjective mm-hmm. and that cannot be explained, here's my explanation for it. Here's my mm. my mental model of it, my framework for understanding it. And so now I'm trying to figure that out for creativity, for how do you make something when you don't know what it is that you're making, when you don't know whether or not it will work, How? what's the process that you go through to do that? And mm-hmm. you know, as I'm writing, I'm discovering for myself because I want to know for myself. Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and I love that that, is, that has a purpose. And that purpose is that I just think there's so many people out there who don't don't know how to do mm. that. And they don't even know that it's an option. And they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to do what somebody's telling them to do, what they've been told to do. But it's not going to make them happy. It's not making them happy. Mm-hmm. And it's not really how the world is going to work anymore. It's becoming more and more important to be able to figure out who you are, mm-hmm. to be able to make that into something that is for other people and, and to bring that into the world. And that process is a very unfamiliar and messy process that is incompatible with the way that uh, we think about getting things done in this, in, in like the, especially the last hundred years or so as We've had this industrial, incredibly productive society where here's how you do things. Here's the steps you follow, you know, and if you don't, if you can't follow steps, if you don't do things on time, then there's something wrong with you. If you start a project and you get excited about something else and you go start a different project and then you abandon that old project, there's something wrong with you. Mm hmm. If you are if you are doodling in class because you're curious about something and class is boring, there's something wrong with you. Yep. Mm, I don't think Something's so. Something's wrong with that. <laughs> I, think wrong with, I think there's something wrong with that. And I think that it's it's this interesting stage in humanity where we've got to figure out how to make stuff, how, how to how to figure out who we are and, and put things out into the world. And so that's been my purpose for the last several years. Now I, I do think that once I create that framework and and put it out there, 
I'm not just going to bang that drum for the rest of my life. What I think I will do is is then take that framework, take what I learned along the way and present it to others and use it for myself to keep making things. Yeah. And yeah. And the purpose. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that there's a purpose to what I'm doing now. I do think that there I, I do think that that's impactful to help people unlock their creative potential. I think that that's one of the best things that I have to offer the world. You know, that's that's feasible for me to do. I'm a big fan of 80,000 hours. I'm a big fan of um, doing good better. And this yep. idea that, you know, you're going to have an impact on, you want to have an impact on the world, but it not, might not be the most obvious thing. It might not be, you know, making sure that the coffee shop doesn't have plastic straws or you know, something. Yeah, the whole that, idea like, of effective altruism. Everybody's is, is great. talking. Right. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of effective altruism, etc. For anyone who's interested in the ideas of like 80,000 hours and effective altruism, great stuff. I'm super into it. Go check out episode 49, where I had a whole conversation about that with Founders Pledge. So if you're interested in knowing more, go check out that episode. I think that what I'm doing is, for me, probably the the right fit for me. But then after that, you know, I I don't know. I don't even know. I don't I don't know if the things I do later have to be impactful. I mean, I think that we're all so tired from this pandemic. I think we all have so much moral fatigue thinking constantly about what are the second and third and fourth level impacts of our direct actions that we're just exhausted. And I'm one of those people myself. And it, I, after this, it might just be whatever the hell makes me happy. I, I really appreciate you sharing that, David. And you probably saw me smiling in a, a weird way. I was <laughs> laughing to myself, but trying not to laugh and cut you off because I so resonated with everything you just said. I was just like, holy crap, have you been like reading my journal? <laughs> because I've been journaling a lot of these questions in recent months. And, and it, I even literally had the same phrase about unlocking creative potential because I think for similar reasons as you, I personally find it very meaningful that like to have that experience. But also when I think about the the effects of ha helping more people do that right like the world the whole world gets better the more people are bringing their interesting creative yeah. good, contributive ideas forward i'm like yeah that that makes sense to me so anything i can do to move that forward you know hell yeah and beyond and beyond the value of the you know world changing things that they create i think that there's it it's a great alternative to a lot of the ways that people spend their time and energy just simply not doing the things that they would mm -hmm. normally be doing and instead trying to create create things that alone is a huge that positive yeah. to totally. me it is a it is a a, a, a great journey I, I feel like it's is is hard to not come out a better person there's certainly some selfish elements to it but i think that is if you want to create something and put it out in the world and you want to actually get the truth about whether people like it or not you're going to have to face some really uncomfortable things about yourself in in that in that journey and that's one of the only ways to even do that i think it's like because it's such an important goal it's so important to you to succeed at this thing that some of the stuff that you're going to hear uh, and learn about yourself along the way you probably would most of us would be likely to reject or ignore mm -hmm. if it weren't if we didn't find a reason for it to be important 
to us. That's that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it. I hadn't thought of it in that specific way. But going back to the idea we were jamming about a few minutes ago of like creative work as a as a means of self development, self actualization, right? Like every developmental, every human developmental pathway I'm aware of, certainly on the spiritual side. Um, that goes into these sort of questions, you know, a huge piece in all of them is sort of the transcending of the lower ego. And I don't know anything that will force you uh, to deal with your ego, like putting stuff in the world that you made, because that can, that can be quite brutal. And it's got it, seems like it can be absolutely gut wrenching. Yeah. You're like, Holy crap, this is my baby. And they might hate it. So, I mean, to have a podcast, you know, for the first two years of having a podcast, I really felt like I was getting punched in the stomach every I, I, time I, I, I looked at my like download stats. Yeah, of, I know the feeling. Just like how, what, the what hell am, am I doing? doing wrong? Like how, like how crazy am I that I'm like yep. spending all this time and energy on this thing, and 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 if it's it's if it's not resonating or is it, yeah, what am I doing wrong? And is it you know you you find yourself wanting to come up with all these scapegoats that, oh, you know, such and such. Oh, this other podcaster, they're cheating or, you know, what else would might come up with? Oh, I can't, can't get this. This person didn't want to be on my podcast or, oh, I can't believe this guest, you know, didn't share it on Twitter or something or yeah, whatever. come up with some sort of thing. But really, it's just, it's just, it's, it all comes down to you have to be so good that they can't ignore you. And, Newport. <laughs> and it, it, you know, and you can be Cal Newport, right? And that's, that's from, uh, Steve Martin. That's a Steve Martin yep. quote, right? And if you read his book, Born Standing Up, there's, I mean, that's a, a great journey that he went on. I mean, any stand up comedy, yeah. it's just, a, a, it's yeah. amazing to hear those stories. That, that's just such a, that's, that's such level. a brutal, like, get up there. <laughs> yeah. You're like a fish on a cutting board and you're just terrible for, if you've been doing it for 10 years, you're kind of just starting out. Like, <laughs> it, 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 you just have to constantly be like, well, I'm just not good enough. And not, and, and at the same time, it, you have to also be like, I am enough. As a person, I am enough. This does not make me a, a bad person or there's nothing wrong with me as a person, but my work, my work is not good enough. Yeah. And even though there's, a, there's certainly a lot of chance to it, uh, there's a huge element of luck, but and you can totally be good and, and, and be toiling away in obscurity for for quite some time. Probably not forever. If you're good enough, like you're going to get noticed eventually if you're, yep. if you're pre- presenting the right thing. And so that's just such a, it's such a satisfying sort of challenge and, and thing to, to go back to over and over again. It's like, all right, well, this is as good as I can get. This is as good as I can make it. I'm exhausted. I can't make it any better. And then you just take a breather and you're like, all right, I can't make it better. What yeah. do I do? Take a nap. Try again. Just, yeah, try this. Yeah. And, you know, just doing that over and over again is, 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 is quite the self-development tool, I think. And I think yeah. that it's something that I, I wish that more people could experience. Yeah, hundred percent. You, you know, it's funny. You just gave a whole bunch of illumination to a statement that I've been thinking about for a while. So way back in the podcast, I had this conversation with a woman named Amy Edmondson, who is a global expert in the topic of psychological safety and how do you build the kind of culture within a team or an organization that really brings forward the best in people. And she's she's amazing. I think it was episode number nine. And we'll link to all this stuff in show notes. My point is, there was something that just kind of came out organically in that conversation that I think you just gave a beautiful, like, 
you just put some meat on the bones. And it was this idea where we, we got into this conversation about like, what is work for? And we were talking about this in the context of like just work generally speaking, but I think it's, it's more interesting to look at it in the lens of you and I are here of like, what is creative work for? And the answer that kind of organically, spontaneously came through me that I, I, I've been sticking with ever since is that it's, it's a, it's a platform to develop and express who we are in service of something bigger than ourselves. And as I listen to you talk about this, I'm like, yeah, that, that feels right. But I also, I don't know if it has to be bigger than ourselves ultimately. Okay, cool. I, I mean, I think that's nice. I think it's, it's good if it is. I try not to make that the aim, I guess. I worry mm. so much about, I, I, I really do think that social desirability bias is like a really dangerous thing. And it, and it causes a lot of damage. Mm. And, and I, I wish people Say more, more about that. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that bias. Yeah. So it's just the idea that like, for example, I think I learned it from who he wrote, um, uh, the case against education, Brian, Brian Kaplan. And okay. which is like, what case against education? What are you kidding me? You read the book and it's like, it's a really well-formed argument that like, Hey, we're spending a ton of money and this actually education doesn't necessarily work. And all the, mm -hmm. all the stories that we have are, have been proven otherwise. And so he talks about social desirability bias and that's, that's that knee jerk reaction right there. Of like, what? No edu ed education is a waste of time and money. <laughs> like, how could that possibly be? And, you know, I don't know how much damage it does, but I guess it, you know, it goes back to this, you know, it's such a, it's such a, a loaded word, but this idea of like a virtue signal, which, you mm -hmm. know, is, is, sure. is weaponized by, by people who, you know, don't have necessarily good intent, but it's actually, I think it's, there's actually some damage to, to that idea, I guess. Look at the damage that Elizabeth Holmes did, you know, defrauded people from tons of money, sent, like harmed people with the, you know, false blood tests, et cetera. This is the Theranos story, right? Right. And part right. of the reason, part of what made her look successful was, was social desirability, I think, was mm -hmm. that she was, it was just such a, a, an appealing story mm. to the media. And I think that she, you know, while also being aggressor of it was also part victim of, of this idea like, oh, here's this young woman in STEM who is doing great things to, you know, help the world. And like, let's just put her on the cover of every single magazine and like feed mm -hmm. that monster mm -hmm. and not ask ever like, is this real? Like, is this legit? <laughs> like, we just like the story. It's going to sell magazines. It's going to get eyeballs. Right. That's just one example. So I, I don't, I don't know. I, I get a sense that social desirability bias is, is, is damaging. And I think that that's part of, part of what's behind effective altruism and something that they try to sort of cut through is like, all yeah. right, this feels this cause that I'm into, like, Oh, I'm going to build a school or I'm going to, you know, send kids shoes so they can walk to school or whatever. Like, okay, well, is that why they're not going to, is that why they're not getting learning? Or maybe it's because they have diarrhea. Maybe it's because they have like, you know, they have intestinal worms that you could cure for like half a cent if you would mm -hmm. just send them these pills or something, you know, yeah. things like that. It's like not sexy at all. And, and so I worry about that for myself sometimes. Like if I feel really good about, if I tell myself this story that I'm having an impact on people, mm -hmm. and I know I just sort of, sort of did that a little bit, but like I say, I try not to make it like a main focus for me. If I tell myself too much of that story, then at, at some point it becomes a little dangerous, perhaps that like, 
maybe, you know, maybe I'm telling myself I'm making an impact and I'm actually not, or maybe I'm actually hurting somebody. And so, you know, not that you can measure everything, but I just try not to make that too much of a part of, of the equation, which is, you know, makes me sound like a terrible person, right? Because social desirability <laughs> bias. And so anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to shit on your idea of like having an impact on people or, or, or anything like that. But I'm just saying that that's a thing that I try to check myself on every once in a while. There's a very legitimate risk. And I say this as somebody who spent a fair amount of time in and around the world of like social impact, social impact technology. There is a very legitimate risk of deluding yourself into like, I am doing something actually good. And then in reality, what you're doing is telling yourself a story that feels good and you're not actually doing anything. Yeah. That's a totally legitimate risk. And that was the last, that was the last startup that I worked at actually was a, was a green startup. It was like a green Yelp. And it was Mm -hmm. sort of one of my last like, after working at a different startup that was kind of like a meaningless, that wasn't totally meaningless. Like we help people get jobs, right? That, that's not, that's actually yeah, not probably more impactful than whatever we were trying to do at this other one where we're like, okay, this is, you know, product reviews for all these eco-friendly products and stuff. But like the more that I like hung around with that crowd, the more like events or whatever I went to. And I, I just like, what? Like, this mm-hmm. is just consumerism dressed up as greenwashing, right? It's like, mm-hmm. yeah. this is just consumerism dressed, not even greenwashing, though. Like, greenwashing is like an intentional yeah. kind of thing, but this is just delusion. This is mm-hmm. just not doing the math on like whether the thing that you're doing is having the impact that you purport it to. Now, mm-hmm. my, my feeble solution to that is to just not purport that there's an impact at all, I guess. <laughs> but, but, but but yeah, so, so yeah, I was in that world too. And I, I got, I yeah. got a little, I got a little jaded from that. Totally understandable. I, I have direct experience with exactly what you're talking about in terms of like, you look at it and you're like, is this all bullshit? Yeah. I'm not sure. I totally get that. I so, want to tell yeah. you though. And so that I don't yep. hope this won't get us too far off, but you know, yep. have you seen the book work by James Suzman? No. So I'm just sort of beginning to read it. And there was a great conversation with him on Ezra Klein, Ezra Klein's podcast. And he's uh, this anthropologist who has spent a lot of time with, I guess they were called the Bushmen, but they're the Jumwasi. Uh, like, it's, I don't know how to say it the say way it. they did it. It's, it's the way it's written is like there's a slash and there's a comma. And, but that's the way he was kind of saying it on the, the podcast and, and, and like realizing that these hunter gatherer tribes, there used to be this story that these hunter gatherer tribes are like, oh, they're like on the edge of death all the time. They're on the edge of starvation. And no, it turns out, you know, they, they work like 15 hours a week getting all the food that they need. And then like another 25 hours a week, maybe, you know, working on their house or stuff like that. And they actually have quite a bit, a bit of leisure time and they have a very, a very laid back lifestyle. And that this whole idea of scarcity that our market economy, capitalist economy is built around is, is not, you know, an economic necessity necessarily. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that mm-hmm. there, you, it is possible to, to not operate under that, under that calculus and still, and still gain sustenance. And, and, but one of the more interesting things is like way early in the book, it's quite esoteric where he starts talking about uh, entropy, this idea that everything will eventually become level, like it'll just be all chaos, right? And that, yeah. and that work isn't necessarily us trying to gain any sort of sustenance or, or meaning, or even in the animal kingdom, like that 
this bird just keeps on making these nests and this and supposedly it's for uh a mating advantage but it turns out that no actually it doesn't like these nests don't actually make a difference in their in their reproductive success that maybe it's really just they have the extra calories and mm-hmm. so they're kind of reconfiguring uh, mm-hmm. to help the process of entropy that mm-hmm. is the taking place entropy. in the universe. Not to fight entropy, but to that, that be part of the process of entropy. Oh, that's interesting. Because as I was listening to you, two ideas from other places sort of fused in my mind. So I'll, I'll offer them up and I don't know, see where they sure. take us. I'm thinking of the book Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi sure. and his all of his work. And then at the same time, I'm thinking about a book I'm reading right now, which is The Time Paradox by Philip Zimbardo. And where those smash together for me, relevant to what you just said, is this idea that, and this may not be what you're saying, but I'm not sure, is this idea that there is a sort of inherent unstructuredness or chaoticness to the reality in which we live. We, we seem to have an innate drive or we feel better when we are able to impose order on that chaos. And like Csikszentmihalyi talks a lot about providing order to consciousness. That reminded me of the Phillips and Bardo time paradox thing because he was just talking about how the one of the essential functions of work for people is to provide structure to the day. Right, yes, yeah, provide structure to the day. I guess there's still this part of me that's like a little nihilist. That's a little <laughs> bit like, you know... Life doesn't really have meaning, and you know, you're in humans. We think that we're great, but we're all humans, so obviously we think we're great, and we think that more humans is good, and we think that what what we're doing here is good, and I don't, maybe we're wrong about all that too. So, <laughs> so I, this is probably frustrating to listen to. These are thoughts that I have. So, while I I do try to you know have some purpose to my life and work, and and I feel a sense of purpose about it is part of me is also like well but also maybe none of it matters <laughs> yeah I, I think it's a valid duality to hold in our minds for me the the purpose thing is is all ultimately more of a, an intention right it's something you hope but we never yeah. can be totally sure frankly <laughs> yeah so that's kind of how i settle out with it i want to switch gears here and talk a little bit more about your book i want to explore more of your book mind management not time management yeah I really, really resonated with this book. And, and one of the things that so made sense to me was, and I think you mentioned this already in this conversation, was this idea that we, we come out of you know, a society that's steeped in 100 years of Taylorism and scientific management. And you know, there's a right way to do everything and just follow the steps and blah, blah, blah. And that system kind of breaks when we're talking about creative work, right? It, it is a nonlinear, unpredictable... It totally breaks, yeah. yeah. It just doesn't work. And so I, when I when I... Like that seemed when I resonated, when I saw that as the premise of your book, it just so resonated with me. And I was just, I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about how this transition is happening because it seems like you're on the, like, I feel like you're on the front wave of something with this because I, I feel like I'm seeing the, the, the core point you're pointing to in many places at once. Yeah. So I was curious, like, how did this emerge for you and, and like, how did this one come into being for you? It came into being for me from uh, writing Design for Hackers. That was, uh, I got this chance to write the, to write a book, and I never had considered myself a writer. But as I was experimenting, that was sort of a thing that was in my mind. Like, oh, maybe someday I'll write a book. I think everybody thinks that probably. But I got the opportunity, and so it was. I signed a contract. You have to write this book in six months, and 
I didn't know how to write a book, but I figured I could do it. I've been through creative agony before as a designer plenty of times. And so I figured I could, I could, I could handle it. But it turned out to be much harder than I expected. And it was frustrating to me that I would spend and you know, it, it took over my life. I cut out my social life. I locked myself in my apartment. Probably none of that stuff was good for me. In fact, I, I think that it I think it was harmful. But that's kind of what I needed to do to make progress on the book was sit in front of the keyboard and really feel agony and feel sort of doubled over in in actual pain trying to get some writing done. And then every once in a while, there would just be this moment where I would hit that flow. I would just start typing and 15 minutes later, I'd have an entire chapter drafted. And I'd say, well, why, why did I have to bang my head against the wall for 12 hours a day to write for 15 minutes? And like, that's all the writing. Like, think about it. Like, most of us can type pretty quickly these days. You can type an entire novel in a day. Ask anybody who's tried NaNoWriMo and has written a novel in a month. Like, that's hard to do. It's hard to mm-hmm. write a novel in a month. And it usually doesn't even turn out that good. But you could type the whole thing in a day. <laughs> so mm-hmm. where's the value here? The value is in, the, hours. in the ideas, <laughs> yeah. right? And so, and we, and a lot of us have had those moments too, where we just have that aha and we, we, some, everything, we have this clarity and there's been wonderful inventions done that way where there's just something appears in somebody's mind. Uh, Paul McCartney writing yesterday or Goodyear coming up with the galvanization of galvanized rubber, just these happy accidents, the discovery of penicillin, the creation of the microwave, these things that just happen in a, in a moment's notice. And so can you, does that, does that process, do you have to just wait for randomness to come? Or can you kind of engineer things, arrange things around so it comes starts to come a little bit easier? So for me, yeah. with writing that book, I, I started to experiment. And I started to, by the time I was done writing that book, have this, the beginnings of this sort of perpetual creativity machine where mm-hmm. like I was doing research and getting certain things in place in preparation for a writing session and then sitting down at that writing session and then actually having the writing come to me because it was, it was ready. I had done the proper steps ahead of time to be ready for, for that, that those insights to come. And so when the smoke cleared on that process, I really started to dig into the neuroscience, the behavioral science. And I wrote a blog post in 2012, mind management, not time management. And sort of outlined my beginnings of this idea that, okay, time isn't the thing that we're struggling with when we're, when we're trying to be creative. What's difficult is getting ourselves in the state of mind to actually create things, to paraphrase Constantine Brancusi. And, and actually, then maybe like a year later, Dan Ariely, the behavioral scientist, reached out to me. And he was working on an app uh, called Timeful, and I advised that app, and and I learned a lot through that process as well. And then that app sold to Google, and they've integrated some of that technology in their calendar. And and so that's kind of how it began, and that's been sort of the evolution of the process. And I started 
working on the book, you know, I mean, it depends on what you what qualifies as starting to work on the book, but I'd say the last couple of years ago, but it's it's been an ongoing journey of discovery to actually get to the point where there started to be a cohesive, something that I could communicate to people about how to manage their creative energy in a way that can help them make those insights happen when they want them to. Yeah. Do you, one of the things I've been wondering about, so, and, and just to set the context, there's seven, there's seven mind states that you cover in, in the book in depth and, and the acronym you use is per golf par. Let me see if I can rattle <laughs> these off. Hold on. I, I've been working on this one lately. So let me see if I can, if I get these right. It was prioritize, explore, research, generate, polish, administrate, and regenerate. Was that right? The last time, last one is recharge. Recharge. Just recharge, recharge so you can do it, do it over again. Got it. There we go. So, and I actually, what I really appreciated that was that you actually kind of gave, I don't know, I love framework. So it, it helped me to start to think, oh, here's a framework for how to manage my energy over time. And so I found that really useful. One of the questions I've been wondering about, so I, I just finished this book recently. And one of the first things I did was start changing how I structured my weeks and sort of batching everything and tagging everything by what mental state it was in and then trying to like, okay, well, how can I batch all the like polished things near each other? And then like, where do I physically want to be? And how do I mentally get myself in the right like mind state for that? And so I started doing, doing that. And I'm like, holy, holy shit, this works. And so a, for people like go buy the book, read the book, do what he says, because it actually works. I can tell you that from direct experience. Now, my question that I'm wondering about now that I'm actually like living with this a little bit is I totally see how this how this maps perfectly to any you know what we'll call uh, stereotypically creative work, right? Like composition or writing or um, music or whatever. How much do you find that this applies to like knowledge work? Does it transfer directly? Is it the same or is it different? I'm not. I don't, I'm not even sure if I know what knowledge work is anymore. I don't like. <laughs> Like like the idea of knowledge work is it, it it sounds like okay you have some knowledge well but knowledge is all free now everywhere like I feel right, like right. does anybody a knowledge worker anymore or are we all being creative I think I mean what does it mean to you fair, what, what's hey, the distinction question. for you I don't know that I have a good one I mean I guess I was thinking about just more of a cognitively driven job. But in, I, I work in creative technology, like your background as well. And so I was, you know, the first things that come to mind for me, my background is as an, an engineer and then a product person. And so I think about like engineering or product work or design work or marketing, those kinds of things. Those are sort of where my mind goes with it. I'm like, okay, what would be yeah. a lot of the states make sense. Totally. But I think I've done some development work myself. And I know the feeling of, you know, working on a bug. Mm -hmm. And you don't know if you're going to fix this in 10 minutes. Or if it's going to happen. And it's one of these things where you can sit there and you're staring at the code and you're wondering, is this saying what I think it says? And I've had those times where you do that and you're like, oh, you have to go to the bathroom. You get up, you come back. And then now it says something different mm -hmm. than what you thought it said. Mm -hmm. Because you were so tight at that moment and you weren't mm -hmm. able to, I don't know if you've experienced that. That's what's been my experience before. We're like, okay, yep. I thought the code said that, but yeah, there's yeah, clearly yeah. a misspelling here or I'm using the wrong method or whatever. Sure. And, and so that's something that, you know, people can intentionally do. And I don't think, you know, it's sort of a cop out. People are like, oh yeah, just go for a walk or whatever. But you can be intentional about those, about those things where, you can say, okay, well, I'm going to you know, go for a walk, clear my mind, and then I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write in pseudocode what I think this does or what it says mm -hmm. or like, 
in in plain English, here's the things that are going on, and you're away from it. And then maybe if you have a chance, if you can sleep on it, that's great because like using sleep to solve your problems for you, that doesn't sound right, but <laughs> you're using sleep, <laughs> as they say in, in, in Spanish, you know, you hear the, you hear the expression sleep on it, as they say in Spanish, consultar la moada, consult the pillow, <laughs> consult your pillow. <laughs> and it's an extremely powerful thing or even taking a, a nap, napping on a problem. Like mm-hmm. actually being intentional about these things. I think a lot of these elements that are, you know, they're, they're, they're just great for creative work, but you can use it for all sorts of things. And I have some examples in the book even where I talk about using it for, for decision making. I use it for planning trips. So planning trips is, I don't know what it's like for other people, but it's, I find it very difficult. You're trying to figure out what are the right routes to fly? Which airline should I fly? Where am I going to stay? And then there's all these different moving parts. Well, if I fly on this airline, then I'm not going to stay in that hotel because it's not in that city or the one that's in that city isn't, isn't good if that's where my layover is and I have an overnight mm-hmm. layover. Mm-hmm. There's so many different moving parts there. And to sit down and try to, to plan all of that at once is totally exhausting. And so it's one of these things that I allow to incubate where I'll sit down and, and like type out, you know, a few different itinerary possibilities, just like broad strokes and then kind of say, all right, well, you're looking for, you're looking for a reward flight for this flight. So Mm -hmm. it it isn't available right now. So here's an action item for next time you look at this to look at this reward flight to, to, to conduct this particular search. And when you step away from it, you let some time pass, you come back to it, that stuff incubates. There's Mm -hmm. that passive genius that somehow like it's all just more clear. And so if you, instead of trying to fight your way through any sort of decision or very complex thing that you have a lot of different moving parts for that you need to reconcile with one another, instead of like trying to power your way through those things, just kind of giving yourself the minimum creative dose of it was the, the expression that I use of like, okay, what are the basics here? I'm not trying to solve the problem. I'm just trying to like feed my mind with it and then step away from it for like, and you don't always have this luxury, but you know, great if you can have a couple days, if you can have a, if you can have weeks in between, that's why you would do a trip planning. Oftentimes I'm planning mm-hmm. trips like weeks in advance. And so it's like every Sunday I'll spend like 15 minutes on this trip and it's just so much easier, so much less exhausting. And mm. you let you let your 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 subconscious take care of a lot of it. Language learning. I use it, I have used it for learning Spanish. I continue to use it for, for learning Spanish. When I first started learning Spanish, I watched the first 20 minutes of Itumama with breakfast every morning. Viewer discretion advised. And uh, and it wasn't trying to like understand it because if you're sitting down, if you want to sit down and like watch the movie and try to understand it every single time, like it's going to be exhausting, but it's just like letting it play like while I'm eating. And then eventually there starts to be these bites, these sound bites in your, in your, in your head. And then you run into situations where you're like, well, in the movie they said this way. So they, maybe I say this, this way. And then you can start to get this grab bag of pieces to, to fit together. My, my partner and I, she doesn't really speak. She's not a native English speaker. I'm not a native Spanish speaker. So every day we read one page of a book, me in, in Spanish, her in English, and we read each page 
like three times. And so, mm-hmm. and it's really interesting how, especially if we have like a couple days break for some mm-hmm. reason that we don't get, get the reading, we like go on vacation or something like that. And we come back. It's amazing how like, oh, it was so hard to read that two days ago or a few days mm-hmm. ago. And now I'm just like, you know, yeah, boom. And the fluency just starts starts to come. And so uh, instead of just trying to power through things, giving yourself that little tiny bit of the minimum creative dose, what minimum thing that you need, and allowing the passive genius, allowing the incubation to take over, we just don't do enough of that, I don't think. And I think that that's something that applies to all sorts of sort of cognitive activities that are happening in knowledge work when it comes to solving problems, understanding a situation really well, a skill acquisition, things like that. Mm-hmm. In the book, you talk about um, trying to match, let's say you have a, a task or some, some bit of work you want to do and you, you've identified it's in a certain mental state. And then then the game is a little bit of like, how do I get myself in that mental state? Some of that is time of day. Some of that is location. Some of it is just biology. And I'm curious, like beyond, you know, you talk in the book about changing your physical environment, right? You talked about going to the like 95th floor in Chicago with this great view for like really kind of expansive thinking and and so forth, which makes total sense. And I think everyone's had that experience of like, wow, I just had this, you know, my mind opened up. (laughs) And I'm curious beyond the, I think the physical environment one is great. And people should definitely listen to the interview you did with Donald Ratner. We'll link to that in the show notes. His book is fantastic. Super cool stuff about environmental psychology. I had never heard of it until your book and I totally enjoyed that. But I'm curious beyond. Yeah, it's super cool. And his writing, by the way, is hilarious. I I really enjoy his writing. Just like the the phrase, there's a phrase in there, optimal curvaceousness. I remember that. And I just (laughs) like, I can't get it out of my head about this. Like he's talking about rooms. Anyways, my question is beyond the, beyond changing one's physical environment, what are some of the ways you have found to be either for yourself or maybe from um, readers or, or people you talk to ways of getting ourselves in the, the appropriate mental state for the, the task at hand? The generate one most of all. So yeah. That's like kind of the, that's where the gold happens. I mean, really, there are ways to, and I'll get to some of the ways that I get myself into states, but really the best is, is to have, is to plan your, your week or plan your schedule in a way that allows you to work in a certain mental state at the same time very often and going along with your whatever your sort of natural energy fluctuations are so for a lot of people for creativity for generate or actually especially explore as as Mm -hmm. another mental state where you're not necessarily like trying to create a finished product but you're trying to explore the various avenues that are there not trying to arrive at the solution but that's a great time for the morning is a great time for that you know when you're groggy haven't had coffee, you know, you feel like you can't think, you know, part of that is maybe people trying to having too high of expectations of what's possible from them. You can get some amazing ideas from from those sort of situations. For actually getting into a state when you're not in it, I often try to just recall a time that I was in that state that I that I want to get into and just having like a just taking a moment to concentrate and imagine and visualize what that was like to be in that state. If if you're, if you're somebody who is maybe struggling to get into a certain state during a certain activity, that's something that you can sort of reverse engineer. There's a, a story I tell that's from Josh Waitzkin's book, The Art of Learning, where there was an executive who 
was having trouble focusing during meetings. And so he asked the executive, well, when is it that you feel that the way that you would like to feel in those meetings or the mm -hmm. sense of mm -hmm. flow? And he's like, well, when I play catch with my son, that's when I feel the most flow. So then he started to set up this recurring habit of, okay, eat this snack, listen to this song, do these stretches, play catch with your son. And then that started to bind those things as stimuli that, that the your brain associates with that mental state. So it became mm -hmm. to the point where he could just think of the song and then he would get himself oh. into that state and he'd do that before, before he would go into a meeting. So it seems like a lot of this is predicated on the idea uh, on these sort of associative links, right? The idea that we get like into a rhythm and we start to associate certain things with certain states, which is that makes sense to me. Although I had been thinking of it a little bit differently, I think I'd been assuming that there were, you know, certain times of the day, at least like speak for myself, that were just going to be better for certain types of things, right? Like I mean, that's true. Okay. I mean, and it's not like, well, I mean, there, there's there's certain times of day that are going to be better or, or, or not optimal for things. But sometimes you have these non-negotiables that sure. happens like, you know, for me to have a podcast interview, to, for me to speak on a podcast or have a conversation like this, we're having it in the afternoon on a Thursday, a perfect time for me. But sometimes there's somebody on the other side of the world and like it's, it's going to have to either choose to do it late at night when I might be starting to wind down or it's going to have to be early in the morning. Mm -hmm, and then sure. those are situations where I'm somebody who drinks very little caffeine. I can't remember the last time I had caffeine, to be honest, but I'm sure it was sometime in the last six months. But, you know, if I'm in a situation like that, I might take a half a cup of green tea and, you know, I save it for, for those moments when I really want it. Or I might take some theanine or something that I do before every podcast a conversation or recording that I even did before this one is I have a specific set of warm-ups that I do for my voice and for my mind as well. It's like improvisational things. And that's something that you have to sort of customize for whatever, for every situation is what are these, what, what are the steps I'm going to do to get into that state? Like you might do it if you're playing a sport, like there's these exercises or these things that you practice before you every every single mm -hmm. these are the things that you want to get a feel for like before and, and I'll, I'll change my warm-up before a podcast for example i have the vocal warm-ups from voice lessons that i took when i was in chicago and mm -hmm. and so i have recordings i might listen to there but it, it will depend upon like okay i might have a little few test sounds that i do and i'm like all right well is that working and mm -hmm. i have a like a little rap that i'll that i'll do like am i stumbling over the words here do i need to stretch out my jaw or or whatever like just like any anybody would who was serious about doing anything would get themselves ready for it and that's a funny thing about about the way that we operate. You know, some of us have a to-do list and it's just this nondescript list of things that are so different from one another. And we just treat it like we could just do any of those things at any time. But no, like an Olympic athlete, before they do an event, they're going to have some kind of warm-up. They're going to get into state to do that. Like you can't expect mm -hmm. to just roll out of bed and be able to do whatever. So if there are any things that on a repeated basis, you need to get into state to do, and then it's something that you need to experiment with and take note of what is this, what are these processes that I'm using to get, to get there? You know, myself, 
for writing, for example, like I just would have uh, whiteboards that I will sometimes, you know, I don't even have anything to actually type with. And I just have the whiteboards and I just, what's on my mind right now? I'll just write a, write exactly whatever it is and change the sentence mid sentence and just try to get a grasp on what's here today. What am I working with? And there's where I want to go. There's what I actually have. There's how does, how do things feel today? And then maybe I'm changing where I want to, what I'm actually going to do based upon what I'm working with today. I really like that analogy because I, I played so many sports growing up, like, but this idea of being a creative athlete almost, right? Where you're like, cool, how do I get myself in the right zone for what I need to do? And that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. For example, one, I'll, I'll do an exercise sometimes where if I really want to, you know, punch up my writing where I, I want more contrast to it, I might actually sit there and, and just write words uh, that are opposites. It's like ice, fire, hot, cold, wet, dry, you know, just, and it has nothing to do with anything that I'm writing. It's just me going through that exercise of contrasts. And that's might, mm-hmm. might be something that I do not because I'm trying to get into a certain state even, but because I know that if I do that, if I sit down in a cafe and I do that, that it's going to seep into my writing in the coming days. And so yeah. drills. You talk a little bit about like this idea that there's kind of fuzzy borders between the states. They're not all like so yeah. cut and dry from each other. And the ones that I find myself sort of fumbling between when I'm, when I'm, as I'm exploring this in my own work is sort of the explore state, the, and the, the generate state. Like yeah. I understand generate versus polish, like polish, I'm coming back and I'm really cleaning this thing, editing, tightening it up, et cetera. But explore and generate and research to me feel all kind of. Mm-hmm real overlappy and I was wondering if you could kind of hoping you could kind of unpack that for me. A yeah, bit. those have kind of the fuzziest borders of all, I think. So, I, I think it's really all about in, intention. Like what do I want to and I'll and I'll switch sometimes based upon like what I'm working with. Like I say, where you're like, Ugh. you know, if I'm sitting down writing a whole bunch of different email newsletters, I might even come like, oh, this one, this idea, boom, I've got this. And then I get to I got to one the other day and I was like, oh, I just don't don't have it for this one. And so that's where I go from, all right, I'm not doing generate so more so much. I'm more doing explore. And that's like doing more of like a barf draft. Mm-hmm. I'm putting it in brackets and now I'm just like writing whatever comes to mind, rewriting, getting stuff on the page. And I know I'm not going to come up with anything, but I know I'm going to come back to this a few days later. And then maybe th- there's things are going to be a little bit more clear to clear to me. And that can happen with 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 re- like you said, research and explore. Research is very often like I'm trying to find the answer to a question. I know what it is that I want to figure out. Like maybe there's some sort of fact that I'm trying to cite or what year something happened, etc. Yeah, very targeted. Yeah, very targeted. Or there's there's like I'm reading a book about Henry Ford right now and I know there's stuff in there that I'm going to use, but it's in more of an explore mental state because if I if I get like I know there's gonna be stuff I'm gonna use about Henry Ford, but if I open this book and I'm like, okay, where's this? That's <laughs> not it's not gonna work. My mind's not gonna be open and ready to to receive it, and so I just have to do the hard work of like, let's just read this whole freaking book and you know see what I find there, and that's an explore state there versus 
oh, wait, maybe I'm doing a follow-up on it. And then, then I'm doing research where, where I say, oh, wait, who was the guy that he raced with that car? What year was that? You know, how did he raise that money? Like, what are the an- specific answers to these questions? Like, that's more of a, a research. And it can, it can also, de- it can depend also on just whether what you're trying to do is working or not. And that's where mm-hmm. I find just telling myself mentally, changing that, intention of okay wait no you're you're trying too hard to be in generate right now you need to be more an explorer you're trying too hard to be in research right now like you get you pick up the book you're impatient you're like oh where's the stuff where's the interesting nuggets here like no mm-hmm. you're not in research here you're not you don't know how to find the thing that you're looking for because you don't even know what you're looking for but you know there's something here yeah even if you don't yeah. know there's something there even if you're just and that's where like there can be a fuzzy border between explore and recharge like i enjoy reading Nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I enjoy reading the book about Henry Ford. It's recharging mm-hmm. for me, but at the same time, it's 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 exploratory, and so yeah, there's, there's some flexibility there. I think I'd been a little too narrow or rigid with my framing around it, where I was thinking certain of these states are divergent, certain are convergent, but mm-hmm. it seems yeah. like it's actually not that simple. Where because I'm thinking about generate, like generate could be either one, right? Like you could be in a more divergent state of generativity, where you're, or it seems like you could be a little more divergent, or you're, you know, you're saying, all right, I have, I have explored all my stuff and, and I have all the Lego blocks on the table and I am now putting this thing together and generating something with it that I'll, I'll, you know, I'll edit it and polish it. Does yeah. that stack up with how your experiences I mean, of it? Some of it sort of depends. There's, a lot of the, this stuff depends on, all right, how complex of a creative problem is this? How big of a project is this? How familiar am I with this? Have I created this type of project before many, many times. So my Love Mondays emails, my newsletter, uh, it has like a certain format to it. They're not all the exact same, but I've, I've created a number of those and it's not a, a long, long project necessarily. But a book, like it, it, it takes a long time and, and it, it might even, I might even be in Generate where I'm creating just articles in Generate and then eventually, and that sort of serves as explore for the book, right? Mm-hmm. Like where you're doing the smaller project and in, in the context of that project, it's, it's generate. But in the context of some larger project that it becomes a part of later, it's explore. But that doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to influence your mental state because the mental state is really just there to help uh, smooth the path for you to do the work that you're doing right, in the right. moment. And as you work your way with these states week over week over week, you can kind of have faith that your your overall project is making its way through the sort of larger four stages of uh, of control or creativity. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's like automatic for me now. I I tag my tasks with the mental states, but so many of the things that I do in my business, whether it's podcast episodes or the the newsletters like a lot of those things are in creative systems which i also talk about in the book where it's just like they're just repeating on certain cycles like on monthly cycles and there's certain weeks during the month that i'm in different stages for these things they just sort of happen automatically they show up the tasks show up in my to-do list and they already have the tags on it and then outside of that is is I've got larger projects that I work on and I kind of already have my rhythm figured out for the week where there's certain things I'm, I'm going to do during certain times of the week because I'm going to be in certain mental states. And then there's certain things that I'm going to try to avoid doing 
uh, during other part times, parts of the week because it's going to be very hard for me to get into the right mental state to do those things. And it's yeah. one of these things you just iterate on and keep doing and uh, you get better and better at. Totally. Well, I want to go ahead and close out here with a couple really quick rapid fire questions. Uh, short questions. Your answers can be as long or short as you find interesting. So the first one is, what would you say you know best? Oh, I, I guess I'd, I would have to say my own curiosity. I have a, I feel like it's a horse that you've got to tame. Mm. You know, I think that, and I don't really know, know much. I don't know anything about taming horses or horses. Horses scare me, quite, quite frankly. They killed, a horse killed Superman. I mean, come on. But yeah. So, but, but I, I do think it is something that you've got to, you know, people get shiny object syndrome and they feel bad about themselves and they beat themselves up over it. And I certainly did stuff like that for many years, but now I feel like I have a pretty good relationship with my, with my curiosity where if I'm curious about something, I can figure out how to satisfy it and at the same time turn it into at least the seed of something that might possibly someday become useful and feel good and okay with the fact that it might uh, not become anything. All right, there we go. And then what is a, a quote or a saying, a phrase that is important to you and that maybe you return to often? And, and what about it speaks to you? Yeah, I think I think one that I like a lot is uh, Maya Angelou. I don't remember the exact words, but I believe it is do as well as you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. Because I think that's one of the biggest enemies of of creating anything is that you don't think that it's any good. And so you don't get finished with it. You don't ship it and you go on to the next distraction. And there's also a paradox to when you work on a project and you get to the end of the project and you're ready to ship it. By definition, you can already do better than what you are, <laughs> than what you're about to ship because you learned while doing the project. And so there's a paradox there and you have to learn how to get over. You have to learn how to ship things and, and, and some part of you is says, Oh, this sucks. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I operate off is that it's the questions we ask ourselves that shape a lot of how our lives go. And I'm curious if, if there is a question that you would have the listener start asking themselves on a regular basis that you think would help them. Yeah. I think the question, is this what I really want? I think I, I have forgotten to ask myself that so many times. And often when I do ask myself that, I realize, oh, it's actually not what I want. I want something different. And so when I find that thing and pursue it, I'm, I'm much happier and I find myself in a more interesting place, I think. Awesome. All right. Well, David, just in closing out, first of all, thank you for your work. I obviously, without my even realizing it until we were getting ready for this conversation, you've, you've been an input in my process for almost a decade now. So thanks wow. for all your work and keep it up and, and much gratitude to you for that. Is, is there anything you'd like to just to leave the listener with it, just in closing out? No. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. It's been an enjoyable conversation. I encourage uh, any listeners who've enjoyed this to listen to my podcast. Love your work. Boom. Done. We will link to all that in the show notes. Well, David, thanks again and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there.